The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. your design for your glory and for our good. So thank you for that. And now please more. Will you carry what you've designed and will you carry it forward and produce effect from it this morning in us? Will you grow us up? Will you fill us? Will you mature us? Will you sanctify us? Lord, take these various means and, and right at this moment, Lord, take the means of your word Open it to us, press it into our minds and hearts, and change us. Make us more like Christ, please. As we listen here, will you drive out from us everything that's wrong? I say that very widely because there could be all kinds of things that in all kinds of ways are wrong. Will you drive them out from us, and will you replace in our minds and hearts what is good and right, true and lovely, holy and pure? Will you make us like Jesus? Please do that this morning now. We pray that always do it now this morning with this passage right now. Build your church onto the name of your son. It's in his name we pray, amen. Most people at some point or another have made a New Year's resolution. You look at yourself and you conclude that Something needs to change, and so from January 1st, you commit to get it done, at least until February or so, and then there's some reevaluation, right? That's kind of how most New Year's resolutions go. You begin with vigor, and then it kind of wanes. It, it drops off, like most diet resolutions, and like most new school year resolutions, and like most new job resolutions and new relationship resolutions. We often look at ourselves and resolve to address a problem. We're good at that part, but we don't often persist at turning over a new leaf. And in a way, that brings us to our passage today in Matthew chapter 7. In a way. As we're going to look at this passage, what we'll see here is Jesus is going to bring up persistence and he's going to call us to to address a need in us. He's calling us to change. And so in that way, it's similar to other resolutions, but it's also very, very different than what we usually do because what we're going to see here is that we are not called to persist in changing ourselves, to persist in fixing something or to persist in getting good at, at something, improving in some way. It's very different in that way. We're actually calling on God to change us. That's different. He does the work. He makes us new. He turns over the leaf for us as we ask, ask, ask. That's what we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 12. Last week in verses 1 to 6, we saw Jesus beginning to turn a corner, so to speak, as he's starting to wrap up this long teaching that we've called the Sermon on the Mount. 
been going on for some time here, and he's coming to the end. All that remains after today are some final sections that in, in various different ways are pointing out God's judgment is coming. God's going to judge all the earth, all the world, everybody in it. That, however, does not entitle us, we saw this last week, does not entitle us to sit in judgment of others. In fact, we are to look at ourselves and judge ourselves, compare ourselves to God's call, take the log out of your own eye. That's where he ended last week. That was verses 1 to 6. And that then brings us to verse 7 this morning. So I'm going to make two observations from 7 to 12. And I'm going to read all the way through verse 12. It's possible your Bible has a, has a break after verse 11 because in some ways people have said there's a, there's a difference here. But I'm going to go all the way through verse 12 because verse 12 was actually the conclusion of the main body of the sermon. You'll recall from the very beginning of this sermon back in chapter 5, Jesus began to talk about, and after the Beatitudes, the law and the prophets explaining what the law and the prophets meant, how, how we are to understand them, how it's all pointing to him. And now here at the end, verse 12, this concludes the law and the prophets. This is the bookend, the end of the main body of the sermon. So we're going to read all the way through verse 12 and draw two observations from it. So let me read, beginning verse 7. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven Give good gifts to those who ask him. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and prophets. Matthew 7, verses 7 to 12. Two observations. Here's the first. In faith, ask God your Father for the grace you need. In faith, ask God your Father for the grace you need. Verse 7 contains three commands, all getting at basically the same thing. Ask, seek, knock. And grammatically, all three commands are put in the same way. They're, they're all saying the same thing constantly, continually. So don't just ask once, ask all the time. Seek constantly. Ask, knock and knock and knock and knock and knock. Pray with persistence. Because actually this is about prayer, of course. 9 to 11 make clear that we are asking God. We are knocking on the throne room of God, if you will. And so we're approaching God. This is about prayer. And he's saying, do it all the time. Seek him, ask continually. And he's concerned that we live this life of, of prayer so persistently. He's so concerned about that that he doesn't just put it in the grammar. You say doing this constantly he actually repeats himself a bunch of times. He gives us a, an argument as to, as to why we should 
engage with what he's getting at. He does this all the time, if you, if you remember. And this is so kind of him that he not just puts out commands, but he puts out commands, and then right behind it, he puts a reason. He puts some sort of logic to it to kind of invite us. So in this case, it's the, the grammar says persist, but, but so does the argument. Ask because God will answer. Ask, you will receive. Again and again. And in case you missed it in verse 7, verse 8 does this very same thing, just kind of runs it backwards. Verse 7, ask and it will be given. Verse 8, for everyone who asks receives. Forwards and backwards. He says the same thing over and over again. Six times. And then, even more, as if Jesus says, but don't just take my word for it though you could take my word for it. Let me reason with you a little bit more. Is that not how things work in the world? Which parent of you, when your kid asks you for some good thing that they need, doesn't give it to them? You respond to that, right, parent? That's what, that's what he's saying. Think about this. Human parents, when their kids ask them for something good, like kneaded bread or fish, they don't give the kid a worthless stone or a dangerous serpent. You don't do that. You've been out all afternoon, you're running errands, it's 6.30, it's 7 o'clock, the kid's in the back seat, or I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. Who pulls over, grabs some rocks, and puts them in the back seat? <laughs> it's that ridiculous. Nobody does that. And... This is Jesus being honest and pointed. And you who are evil, we're sinners. You don't even do that. You're inclined to say, good, and you give it. You won't give worthless. You won't give dangerous. You'll give good. Even you who are fallen. Now, of course, the analogy also implies a bunch of other things. Sometimes kids ask for worthless and dangerous things, thinking they're good, and the parent says no. Because the parent knows better, right? Sure. Sometimes the parent says no, thinking the parent knows better. But we're wrong. We are, we are sinners. We're fallen. We're evil. We're wrong sometimes. We're also biased and lazy. Sometimes we parents say no because I can't be bothered right now. So that's, that's, all, that's all true, but Jesus' point is, is clear and general and obvious, right? When your kid asks you for something, if you're a parent and your kid asks you for something that you know is good and that you know they need, you are inclined towards that. Well, how much more, notice, not just God, but how much more your Father in heaven? Wouldn't he be inclined towards you as children who ask him? Who ask him, that's how he ends, who ask him, not who deserve it, how much more towards you, his children, who have helped themselves? You know, God helps those who help themselves. So if he's watched, you're worthy, so he'll help. Nope, doesn't say any of that. It just says, who ask him? Please, Dad, your Father in heaven became father to you by his design on purpose. He adopted you. If you're a Christian, 
He adopted you into his family and on purpose deliberately gave you the right to call him father. To come into his presence and say, Dad, you're the only people on earth with that right. The person who is a Christian, only the person who is a biblical Christian, that is, to be really clear about this, to be really clear about this, only the person who understands, intellectually understands, the actual biblical gospel, that the triune God, the only God who is, Father, Son, and Spirit sent God the Son to earth to take on a human body to go to the cross and pay for the sin of human beings. That God came and took on a body, went to the cross to pay for the sin, himself alone to pay for sin. That's that's the message of the gospel so that those who trust him can be forgiven. You understand that message and agree with it. You, You acknowledge, yep, that's true, and then trust that alone. Not that plus of... 5%, 3%, 2%, 1% of my works. You know, after I've done all I can, then then that applies. Nope. That's not that message alone. The biblical gospel is that God sent that Christ, the second person of the Trinity, alone. And that grace alone, received by faith alone, and that Christ alone, as recorded in the Bible alone, alone, to the glory of God alone. The alones are critical. That's the gospel. If you believe that, if you've trusted yourself to that, you're a Christian and God said, I did all of that on purpose so that I could make you able to say, Dad, help. That's the point. That's why I did that. To clear away all the obstacles so that you could say, Dad, help. Jesus reminds us of that. He doesn't just put it in the grammar, the, 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 the tense it's saying repeatedly often. He doesn't just repeat it six times. He doesn't just argue it from the logic of how human parents work. He reminds us that at the very end, and he's your father in heaven on purpose by his design because he wanted you to have access to all that he has. That's the argument, and it's all very clear and very logical. So why does Jesus so belabor the point? Repeat it forwards, repeat it backwards, argue out the logic, remind us of who God the Father is. Why? Because we barely believe it. Frankly, we're barely listening to him and barely believe it's that necessary, and barely believe that God, I suppose he'll answer, but I'm not really completely sure that he'll answer with something that I actually want in a timely way. We, and guys, he's talking to Christians here. He's not talking to the world. He's talking to Christians here. This is us. We hear this, and we tend to say, "Uh uh-huh, but I actually have a whole lot more confidence in the stuff I can see and the things that I can do to secure my own life for myself. So I hear the offer. I acknowledge it is true. That's great. But I, you know, thanks, but I think I got it. 
That's why he is so at pain to belabor this point. We're barely listening and we barely believe it and barely believe it's necessary. Our prayerlessness tells on us. Your prayerlessness tells on you. Because prayerlessness says, I hear the offer and I say, I will pray when I bump into something that I really need you for. But most of the time, I got this. Prayerlessness tells on us. It it shows our unbelief, or rather our self-belief and our self-confidence. We sinfully prefer to lean on ourselves and our own ways. And that's Christians he's talking to. That's us. We don't really believe we need it. We don't really believe he'll come through for us. We don't really believe he'll give us good. We more believe that I can. So what we've got here actually is a call to Christians, not just, notice this, if we thought this was about persistence in prayer, it's actually about belief. Because he doesn't say, I just want you to persist in prayer. We, we got that, we heard that, we heard that repeatedly, but we don't because we don't believe. So what he's trying to do here actually is not say, I mean it, stick at it, be constant. What he's saying here is, believe. You live in a world of need and you are weak and you've got a Father in heaven who has everything and will give it. He will, he really will. Let me remind you who he is, let me remind you how he is and call you to trust him and not yourself. Jesus is aiming to build faith here because that's upstream from persistence in prayer, to build faith that this is what we need, this is the one we need. That's true in every sense. So it would be good for you, I think right now, Christian, it would be good for you to pause for a second and consider your needs and consider your prayerlessness. Maybe repentance is in line. To see God's promises here is Jesus says he'll answer, he'll give what you need, he's your Father in heaven, to, to see all that and line up your prayerlessness and your need and, and God's promises Do that for a moment. Just for a moment, because there's actually something a lot more important to consider here. Do that, but we need to move on because while this applies in general to prayer in general and needs in general, As with many other parts of the Sermon on the Mount, we are very inclined to take this section out of its context and use it to teach about prayer in general, about needs in general, kind of like I just did. And that kind of works because there are things about prayer in general and needs in general that are here and that are repeated elsewhere in the Bible. And so it, it is, in a way, it is legitimate to do what I just did with this passage. But it's most important that we understand the passage in its context in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you think about that for a second, you might find yourself wondering, yeah, I was kind of wondering why there was a general statement about prayer just kind of plopped in here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Because it's not just a general statement about prayer. 
this sermon is crafted so well. Jesus is an amazing preacher. I've said this a number of times to different people. Jesus is a genius. And he is. The, and the end of the sermon is so well crafted. We've got to kind of see what he's doing here to realize what he's really getting at in 7 to 11 and 12. So, walk back and let's, let's catch his train of thought here. And if you haven't been, if this is the first time you've been here in maybe ever or a long time, this might be a little bit hard. I'll try to help, but it, it'll be easier if you've been here repeatedly and you'll see where I'm going. So let's look right back to last week and remember, what was last week? Well, last week he's confronting us. Remember how verse 5 he even called us hypocrites? Again, he's talking to Christians and he confronted us and called us hypocrites because we walk around Inclined to think that the speck in my brother's eye is the most important problem here, ignoring the log in my own eye. Remember that from last week? The, the log, I must address the log in my own eye. Judge yourselves. That was last week. And as we talked about that just last week, we realized that it's most natural, of course, that Jesus expects us to use what he's teaching at the moment, the, the sermon that he's preaching at the moment, to use that in judging the log in our own eyes. To roll our minds back through the Sermon on the Mount. So if we're going to address this log, we roll back through the Sermon on the Mount and we see him talking about what our righteousness is supposed to look like, what our righteous walk is supposed to look like, and how we are supposed to live for his kingdom and how that all starts in our hearts first. We do that as we confront the log that's in my eye. Never mind you, I'm dealing with me and my problems, facing my abiding sin and my need to change, and I'm rolling back through all that, and I, and I realize my inability, you realize your inability to make yourself holy, and you come to this very beginning, poor in spirit and mourning over your own sin. I am broken by the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm so small, and I cannot do anything about it. I cannot fix myself. I bring nothing to this. I came naked into the world. I'm going naked out of the world, and the clock is ticking. That's coming up soon. And where are you at that moment? Oh, broken. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness that I cannot produce and don't have and need. I'm broken as I see the log in my own eye and I can't pull it out and I can't even, if it comes out, it goes right back in. I can't, God help me, God help me, God help me. And here comes verse 7. Jesus says, yeah, there, there. Right, ask him. Ask, seek, and knock. See the connection? To go back to the beginning, I work all the way back to the beginning and I'm broken over my sin as I deal with this log in my own eye. The first three Beatitudes and the fourth Beatitude, you recall, right in the middle of the pivot point, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Verses 7 to 11 are the fourth beatitude. Totally different, but identical. Verses 7 to 11, after you face the log that's in your own eye and judge yourself and are broken over it, you say, God, help me, calling out to God, asking him, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. This is what I need and I cannot produce it. Help, please, Jesus says, ask, yep, ask, 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 and your Father will give you what you need. 
This is not just a general section about general prayer and needs. We should pray about those things for sure. Pray for your daily bread. That's in, the, that's in the middle of this Sermon on the Mount in Jesus' model prayer. Absolutely for sure. But right here, what he's saying is, I have a log in my own eye. I am so judgmental. I am so anxious. I am so focused on this earthly kingdom. I am so distrusting of you, Lord. That's the end of chapter 6. And I'm so prone to flood my mind and to flood my heart with the dark light of worldliness and to live for treasure on earth. I so long for the praise of people. It's the beginning of chapter 6. What others think of me rules me more than what you think of me in chapter 5. And I'm greedy and I'm focused on myself and my rights and I'm hateful and vengeful. I rage at personal injustices. I'm not faithful to my vows. I'm full of lust and anger. I shrink back in fear from persecution and keep my mouth shut in all witnessing opportunities. And I'm not a peacemaker and I'm not very merciful and I'm not meek and I'm, I'm really, really far short of what you mean for me to be. Help. Please change me. broken and mourning over our own sin as we deal with the log in our own eye. We are right back to the beginning of this in the Beatitudes and Jesus says, you hunger and thirst for righteousness, that's what you need, yeah. Ask him, ask him, ask him and ask him and ask him and ask him and he'll pour out sanctifying grace on you and change you and make you new. Now, and I work back through the sermon like I just did and I pour on all those words from all those different chapters, it's probably not the case that all of that describes any one person here. If you were here for all these months as we were working through the sermon, there probably were different parts of passages and sentences that struck you more than others. This one and that one, maybe it, 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 we're all a little bit different. Each Christian is, is prone to struggle with one thing or another. But somewhere in there, in some combination, we each find ourselves. And what is so encouraging right here at verse 7 and following is that Jesus also says that each Christian can also surely find him or herself in 7 to 11. Wherever you found yourself in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, broken by it, you can also find yourself right here asking for God's good help, certain that he will give it to you. He wants your sanctification more than you do. He wants to make you like Christ more than you want to become like Christ. He wants to grow you up. That's also the work that he accomplished at the cross to begin the maturing of you. He, he's very committed to that as any good father is for his children. Committed to that. So believe that, that you can be different. That God wants you to be and you can be different. That he can and he will work in you to make you more like Christ, which would be life for you. That would be joy for you and peace for you. It would be honoring to God. It would be good for all the people around you. So hear that and in faith ask him. 
ask him. This is a key pivot point right here. Because so often, unfortunately, what we do is we hear that, and if in some way you agree with it, what you say is, yep, and maybe not a New Year's resolution, maybe it's a June 17th resolution, yep, I'm going to be different. No, you're not. You can't be. You're fallen and sinful. You don't have enough in you to make yourself different. So much of the religious atmosphere of our world, and especially the religious atmosphere of this area right around us and the religion that's all around us, believes that if I just understand and am taught well what should be, then I will make it so. And no, you won't, because you can't. All the faiths of the world, I mean it with a capital F, all the faiths of the world work on that principle. Let's make clear what people should be and tell them to do it or else. And the true biblical faith, the only faith that's real, from the only God who is, isn't anything like that. The true biblical faith says, let me tell you what you should be, call you to it, and condemn you for your failure, which is inevitable. And then point out the goodness and the grace gracious, loving God that I am that comes right in to give you the grace that you need to rescue you so that all glory and all honor and all praise is his, nothing whatsoever to man. That's the true faith. One that tears down all people and leaves us condemned before a holy judge and then shows a gracious and loving God, Savior that he is. And gathers all glory and all praise to him because it is grace from start to finish. So we ask him, we, we come before him and say, oh God, I see what you require. I understand what the law and the prophets lay in front of me and I'm broken by it and I'm mourning by it. Oh help, help, help. And crying out and asking, he says, I will to the glory of me. That is to the glory of God. Which is your good See the both? The glory of God, which is your good. Because he gets honored as the changer and you get changed. He gets honored as the deliverer and you get delivered. Loved, saved, made new, blessed. Oh, it's so good. This is the true faith. The Christian biblical faith. Hear this. See all the sermon. Be broken by it and be moved to ask God to make you new. Hungering and thirsting, praying, praying, praying. This should be the main core of what we pray about. We've got a bunch of other things, and we should pray about our daily bread for sure, absolutely. But right at the core of it should be, your kingdom come to me, your will be done in me, you be glorified in me. Lord, help. And this should be great hope to pray because Jesus says, he will, he will, he will, he will, he will, he will. Don't you? He's your father. 
This is the truth. This is full of hope. This should direct how we pray for ourselves and for other believers around us. So think through the needs that you know that you have, the log in your own eye, and ask him, God, make my mind new. Show me the truth. Cause me to love it. Cause me to love it. You realize you can't cause yourself to love anything? This is just me coming at the same truth from a different direction. You can't cause yourself to love strawberry ice cream if you hate it. Or vanilla if you hate that. You can eat a truckload of it. But you can't make yourself love it. You can probably go to, go to a point where you don't hate it so much. You can you tolerate it because you're used to it. But to love it. When at some point you find, you know, I, I love this thing now. I love this God now. God did that. Now, ice cream, who cares? This sport or that sport, who cares? We, things, that are, things that are human, they, they come and go. Affections are coming and going. But we're talking about to, to love the God who is holy. The Bible tells us that does not come to us naturally. No one loves him. God awakens that. God strengthens it and grows it and builds it. So ask him for that for yourself and for others. You can see in your own self where where your heart is cold and where it is weak. Or you can come at this from a different angle. You can just read through the Bible and see these are the things that we need and pray for those. But either way, you're coming at need. This is what I, my loved one, Brothers and sisters in the church, this is what we need. God, help. Give it to us. Grow. And your Father will hear and answer. That's the situation that he created on purpose when he sent Christ to the cross and turned away from him so that he could turn towards you. He sent him away so he could welcome you in. Welcome you in to ask him for grace that you need, for mercy that you need in the moment. Ask, seek, knock. Your Father will give you the good that you need to grow you up and make you like Jesus. And then, he'll send you out. Which is the second observation and much shorter, just from verse 12. Second observation, full of what you need, then, turn and love your neighbor as yourself. Full of what you need, then, turn and love your neighbor as yourself. If I wanted to make this really, really wordy, I could have put it like this. By grace, well on your way to loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sanctified, maturing. Now, love your neighbor as yourself. That sums up the law and the prophets. And if you think about that, you realize, oh yeah, this Jesus guy is a genius. Because he finished the Sermon on the Mount by encapsulating here the summary of the entire Old Testament. 
7 to 11 are about me growing to honor the Lord. In verse 12, then the very last one is, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the entire Old Testament. And that's actually all the Beatitudes also. Because remember the first three Beatitudes are about me broken. The fourth one is the pivot in the middle. Do you remember 5, 6, and 7? Now towards my neighbor. Pure in heart towards my neighbor. Merciful towards my neighbor. Peacemaker towards my neighbor. It's all right here. Totally different, but identical. So, verse 12 is very familiar to us, and we have to consider it in its context, though, which, of course, is that context of the Sermon on the Mount. But we also need to consider verse 12 in the context of the larger culture. Jesus' listeners existed in a culture. Then they would have heard around them, like we, we also hear around us today, a very similar teaching that was a little bit different. So they would have heard this and said, like, oh, that's like, oh, but it's actually, it's different. They would have heard, we also hear today, whatever you don't want done to you, don't do that to others. You don't like people gossiping about you? Well, don't gossip about them. We, we say to little kids sometimes, do you like it when people hit you? Well, don't hit your sister. And that's good and useful. That's, that's helpful. kind of helps put people in the spot of the other person kind of realize that's not good. That's all good. And, and while it's similar to what Jesus says here, the stance of it is different. It's effectively don't. Hands off. Leave people alone. Don't do something wrong to them. Don't sin against them. Which is a negative different than the positive of do love them, which is what Jesus actually says. His statement is different in that it's do them good, not just don't do them wrong. Love your neighbor. And who's my neighbor? Everyone else. Others, he says. Everyone else is my neighbor. So love your neighbor. And what does it look like? Well, what would you appreciate done in this situation? Jesus doesn't encourage us to create some sort of tit-for-tat situation, like if I do this, then you'll do that back for me. He's just saying, whatever you would like done, I mean, put yourself in their shoes. That'll give you a good rule of thumb as to what the loving thing might be here. What would you want done for you in this situation? Do that. Not perfect, but it's a good rule of thumb. So that's the command, and the verse begins with so because Jesus thinks it's connected to what he just said. Asking God to work in us, to give us the good that we need, growing us up so we are, we are full, we are maturing, we are, we are satisfied and sustained, we're okay then. And so here at the end, we can give our lives away. Blessed to be a blessing. All over the place, all over the Bible, and here it is, pretty clear. Pure in heart towards them, merciful towards them, at peace and making peace. This is just like the Beatitudes. You can work all through the sermon, not angry and not slanderous towards them, but encouraging and kind and generous. Salt and light, acting towards my neighbor in a, in a way that is helpful and preserving, illumining of what is true and important, but not judgmental and condemning. Pointing people with everything that I have, all the resources that I have, pointing them towards what is true and important, pointing them towards Christ, but in a way that's not 
condemning of them. That sits proud and superior over top of them. Not like that. To love them and do them good. This sums up the law and the prophets. There's God's requirement of us, the Old Testament. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and standing in that river, soaking all that up like a sponge, love your neighbor from the fullness that you have. In a way, this is so very familiar to us. We've heard this a thousand times. All that's left then is to do it. So verses 7 to 11, ask. And then verse 12, give. And we can, we can, in faith, walk that path right through 7 all the way to 12. That's what he's equipping you to be and do. But we have to be very clear with ourselves, with our kids if you're a parent, their neighbors, with the world in general. We have to be very clear that it is impossible to pick up this sentence by itself needlepoint production on the wall and say, there, do that. The golden rule, another word for rule, the golden law. This is for sure what God requires. It's right here at the end. Then he's just made the point. That's the Old Testament law. That's what, that's what God requires in the law and the prophets. But if you put that up in front of yourself or your children or your friend and say, there, do that, that's how we should live. What you're also saying is, and we can't. Let's be really clear about that. We we must be really clear about that. So so much religion, again, thinks like, like there, there's the standard and there's what we're called to. Let's Let's just walk that direction. And nobody does. You do not. We do not love our neighbors as ourselves. Let alone do for them what we'd want done. We don't have an affection in our hearts. We don't love them like we love ourselves. We're lawbreakers from start to finish, every single one of us. So if we hold that up, if we put that on the wall, if we we teach that as here's how we live, what we're saying is, and we're all lawbreakers, and all worldly religion is short and fallen and broken. And yet that is what God requires. And as next week and following will say, and he will judge all the earth for it. He will judge all the earth for it. So at the end, we, we find here not, not, a beautiful, not a beautiful platitude about here's how we all should live. What we find here is, again, a beautiful con- commendation of the gospel of grace. This is indeed what God requires. And it's what God has enabled when he sent Christ to make us a people who are like that, increasingly so, who live not for ourselves but for his kingdom and for the people all around us, forgiven of our law-breaking and empowered to be new. That's what he calls us to. That's what he makes possible in the gospel. Not by our might or by our power, but by his spirit. So we persistently 
ask him. Ask him. I'm done. And in a way, so is the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of red ink left, but what this is, is, is kind of his closing remarks. It's all calling people to respond. So, in a way, as a prelude, there's the Sermon on the Mount. What are you going to do with it? We've, we've had a lot of conversation in our church body about this sermon over the last number of months, and I think it is ten times as amazing to me as it was before I preached it. Because I understand it more, I see more in it, I, I see the genius of Jesus in it. It's, it's amazing to me. Maybe it is to you too, and you, and you just think like, wow, 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 what a sermon. Great. What are you going to do with it? Where, where this comes here at the end is Jesus says what you need to do with this is let it break you. See the log in your eye. And then let it draw you to your Father in faith, prayerful. He'll answer. He loves you and he cares for you. He will answer. And then give your life away for him. Loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what we have to do with this sermon. And anything less, anything that just marvels at how awesome of a sermon it is and says, now, nah, what's in chapter 9 and moves on, will miss the point. This is probably the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher there ever was. Respond to it. Ask, seek, knock. And then love. Let me pray towards that end. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.